Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Mr. Jones Watchers podcast. In this episode, we talk to Crispin Jones, founder and director of Mr. Jones Watchers. Keep listening to find out how and why Crispin started the brand and the biggest challenges that we have faced as a business over the years. So hi Crispin, how are you? Yeah, good thanks Olivia, how are you? Yeah, good thanks. Um, How's everything? Yeah, very good. Like I'm weirdly quite busy at the moment. I say weirdly because we feel a bit out of step with, you know, everyone else. Like I have a lot of friends who are kind of furloughed or, you know, who, whose work has just really quietened down. But yeah, for us, it seems pretty, pretty busy. Mm-hmm. Is everyone going back to uh, the office now? Not quite. Um, the COVID-19 thing has affected us quite a lot in that most people who can work from home are now working from home. Well, all the people who can work exclusively from home are working from home. Most of the production people are now working from the workshop, but we've sort of reorganized it so that we have two units that we rent in there. So people are spread across the two units more evenly. But yeah, we, like more people are back now. For the first five weeks of the lockdown, um, there were more people working from home. Um, but it's it's just simpler for us to organize the production if everyone is there in in like one site. Mm-hmm. Would you say that things are going back to normal slowly for us? Yeah, I, I guess they're going to the new sort of normal. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things, one of the changes that's happening is because the Oxo Tower shop is closed and that's where we used to send all the orders from, we're going to rent a third space in the workshops in Camberwell so that we can pack and send the orders from there. Because what's kind of been happening is packing up the orders has sort of overwhelmed the unit that we use for production because it's it needs a lot of space to kind of lay out the watches that we're sending out and stuff. Um, so we kind of need a bit more space. Mm-hmm. So on a different note, what did you do before setting up Mr. Jones Watches? So I have an undergraduate degree in fine art, specialising in sculpture. And after I graduate from that, I worked for a couple of years um, basically as a graphic designer. And then I went back to study for a master's at the Royal College of Art in a course that was called Computer Related Design. Computer Related Design, even at the time, was a terrible name for what was a really interesting course. It was a course that was involved in any sort of creative use of technology. And this was like, well, I studied there from 1998 to 2000. So actually it was before the sort of mainstreaming of technology that we all live with now. So it was a time when we were viewed as quite strange within the Royal College of Art because we worked in front of a screen all day, every day. Like now is you go to an art college, everyone works in front of a screen or everyone has a laptop. But then we were you know weird it, yeah it was it was an interesting course it was interesting as well because it wasn't like an MA in photography where everyone probably studied photography before it was an MA in a subject that no one had studied before so there was quite a diverse range of people who studied on it so people like me who came from a fine art background but then other people who came from graphic design or product design or you know all different sort of fields um, so after after I graduated from that, I spent some years making stuff like one-off pieces for exhibition that were not really product design, not really fine art, but some odd space in between that was sort of grouped as media art. Some of those things are still online that you can see. There was 
like a set of mobile phones that I made that each in different ways changed the user's behavior by having a very different form of interaction. So for example, one of the sets of phones had metal plates on the side that delivered a variable level of electric shock depending on how loudly the person on the other end of the call was speaking. So if the person you're speaking to is shouting at you down the phone, then you get this electric shock, you know, a stronger electric shock through your hand. So the idea with that was to make people generally speak more quietly on their mobile phones. Um, and another had a, an interface where in order to dial it, you had to kind of play it like a trumpet. So it made the action of dialing a number uh, very sort of public in, and made you very conscious of your surroundings before you called someone. I mean, this, this was like early 2000s, which was a time when mobile phone use had really um, mushroomed all of a sudden and like taken off and become fairly, I don't know, it, it become quite a disruptive thing in the city. You know, just you'd ride around on the bus and people would be like really loudly talking on their phone because, I don't know, they're just unaware of the people around them. While you're at uni or doing a master's, did you um, always do interactive like artworks? When I was studying fine art, no, not really. There I was doing, um, so I was studying sculpture, but sculpture has a really tight link with photography because when you make sculptures, you always have to photograph them in order to show your work. Like that's the kind of normal way of things. So you, you graduate from a sculpture course with a portfolio of slides, or you did back in the day that then you could sort of send around to people. So I kind of became more interested in just the photography side of it and especially manipulating the photographic part. So the photography department at Kingston, where I was studying, um, had one Mac with Photoshop version three on it. And like it was really exciting because you could fake sculptures, you know, create things that would be impossible to make in real life but you could kind of present them in the same way that you would present the other sculptures. So that's like, I was studying sculpture, but I wasn't carving stone or anything like that. I was using Photoshop to make sort of collages, really. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I started using technology, but it wasn't particularly interactive. It was more like through, after I graduated, when I started just playing around with stuff, um, and then later on the, the computer-related design course, that I became more involved with making sort of interactive pieces. Mm -hmm. So what were the first five watches that you released? So a bit of context for them. Like in 2005, I made a one-off set of watches for exhibition, for um, sort of submission to media art competitions. Um, these were all... So there were seven watches in that series. They don't really look like consumer products. They look more like um, sort of props, I guess. Um, and like they were designed in a bit like the mobile phones to sort of question what the purpose of the watch was. So the watch is about reinforcing your sense of, I don't know, like affluence or style or status. So it's this kind of affirmative object, affirmative sort of piece of male jewellery. But I wanted to sort of subvert that and undermine it. So, for example, one of the watches alternated the time with the statement, remember, you will die. Um, and I was kind of interested in that as a way of rather than the watch making you feel superior to people around you, it might make you feel more humble. Um, so there were all these kind of plays with the 
the sort of, I guess, the sort of meaning of the watch. So that that was a sort of one-off series that I made. It went in a few exhibitions. You know, it was reasonably well received within the the sort of boundaries of what I was doing then. But I was kind of aware that it would be more interesting if these were actual objects that people could live with or, you know, or buy. And I've been trying to work out a way to make my practice more sustainable at that time anyway. Um, so I thought I would make a set of actual watches that could be sort of retailed as a product. Um, so I started off emailing different factories. I didn't know anything about the watch industry. I didn't have any contacts. I emailed like a bunch of factories with the same question. You know, I, I'm a designer in London. I want to make a small series of watches. What's the minimum order I can make? Um, and I had a few questions like, can I design my own case and things like that? Um, quite quickly, there was only one factory who was mailing me back. And the deal with them was the minimum order was 500 pieces. Um, you could make as many changes within the 500 as long as you paid the setup fee for each design. So with the sort of fine art background, I thought what makes sense for me is to make five 100 piece limited editions. Like one of the things they said they could do was to put um, individual numbers on the back of the watches. So I thought, well, that's good because then they can number them in the edition. So one of the first watches was the Remember You Will Die. In a way, it was more elegant than the sort of prototype initial version because rather like on that one, it was a digital screen that had the time on it. So it had the time numerically and then that disappeared and the statement Remember You Will Die appeared and then it flipped back to the time. So it was more elegant in the production one because the words remember you will die were integrated into the time display because the word remember became the hour hand and you will die became the minute hand so it was a you know it was a more satisfactory kind of um expression of of that idea so that was one of the watches because i wanted to put words on the hands I'd specifically asked if I could, if the factory could print on transparent discs rather than making metal hands. Um, one of the other things that occurred to me from that was that you could make a kind of optical effect where if you had a sort of white printing on the dial, then if you also had a white printing on the disc hand, it would effectively disappear. But then if you had like a dark color on the dial as well, then when the white part of the disc was over the dark color, then it would appear again. So for that, I thought it would be nice if you could have a watch that helped you make decisions. So that became a watch called The Decider, where on the seconds hand, there's the words yes and no printed around the edge. And when the word yes is over a coloured section, the word no disappears and vice versa. So constantly the watch is alternating between saying yes, no, yes, no, like every second. So that was a kind of another... Another way of exploring, like the things I was interested in when I was making one-off pieces for exhibition and stuff was sort of exploring how technology, I don't know, the I guess the sort of social context of technology, like how we use technology to take away things like decision-making, which humans find kind of difficult to, to do, and how we prefer to create technology that's a sort of crutch that helps support us in decision-making. So the, the yes, no, a watch that makes decisions for you was quite a pure sort of distillation of that idea. Mm -hmm. um, there, there were some others in the series that had some mortality references or 
were kind of decision making, but the the decider and the accurate were the two strongest um, from that very initial series. Mm-hmm. And how did did you always like watches before setting up Mr. Jones watches? Yeah, ish. Um, like I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't the kid who grew up taking apart watches. I didn't have like a grandfather who was a watch repair person or anything like that. But I was unusual in that I wore a watch. Um, and I, I wore a very specific watch that was designed by a guy called Tian Harlan called the Chromacron, which was a watch that instead of having sort of numerical display on it, has different colours for the different for the 12 hours. And Tian Harlan had this interest, like Tian Harlan's a Swiss German designer. He had this sort of interesting philosophy around um, letting go of numerical time and living in a more sort of, I, I guess, in a, in a way more allied with nature, perhaps. It sounds very sort of hippie-ish, but it was a bit <laughs> a bit more, um, I don't know, a bit more interesting than that. Did you say um, you were a child when you had that watch? The Chromacron watch, I actually had, um, I came across it in like the early 2000s, although the watch was originally released in, well, the Munich Olympics was in 72, and I think that's what he designed it for originally. And then the wristwatch version of it was mostly sold in the 80s. But I wore mm-hmm. that up until the first set of Mr. the first set of samples of Mr. Jones watches came in, which is when I started wearing a Mr. Jones watch instead. Um, okay. So no, I was I was wearing that before. And actually, interestingly, the Chromacron has a disc hand rather than a metal hand, um, which was one of the places that I'd the reasons that I thought to print on transparent discs. Mm-hmm. A lot of the watches that you've designed have like memento mori themes. So where did you get your inspiration for that? And why is that interesting to you? I think hmm, like within fine art, there is a very long tradition of the memento mori in painting and sculpture and stuff. I think what I thought was interesting was like the Victorians were really obsessed with memento mori and created things like um, mourning jewellery. So if you were a woman and your husband died, you would wear all black jewellery to sort of signify to people around you that you were in a state of mourning. And, you know, to sort of, I mean, partly that, but partly also because they sort of glorified in death and suffering and stuff. But I think what I thought was interesting was I would wait like 1,000 years before a watch company would come to me and say, you know what, we saw that, remember your die watch, we think that's a really good idea, we'd like to make it. But I had a hunch that actually a remember you will die, like remember you will die on a watch would be quite a persuasive product, you know, it would be a product that people would want to buy. So mm-hmm. I guess in a way it was a sort of experiment to see if that hunch was right. Mm-hmm. Um, once like the accurate, which had the sort of pure expression of remember you will die, you know, that sort of proved that the memento mori was a popular thing. To be honest, when I started doing the watches originally, I had little, I had relatively little knowledge of what other watch companies did. I wasn't particularly fascinated with the world of watches. I think, and I, to be honest, I think that's one of our strengths that we we're not really a watch company that particularly looks at other watch companies. Um, but after I'd done the first series and stuff, I felt more obliged to educate myself about what other watch companies do. But there's a whole genre of skulls on watches. And I thought they were always a bit lame because what they do is they'll print a skull on the dial and then just have two metal hands for the hour a minute. I thought it was a mm-hmm. bit uh, underwhelming because I, I thought, you know, what's nice about the Accurate is that integration of 
the message and the time telling, you can't separate one from the other. Whereas if you print a skull on the dial and just have two metal hands, like they're totally disconnected. So mm-hmm. I, I wanted to create a skull watch because I thought, you know, there's a kind of pictorial embodiment of the remember you will die concept. Um, but I wanted it integrated. So that was where the time telling on the skull's teeth um, sort of came from. So as a way to integrate that memento mori idea, but in a more pictorial form, like in a less textual. Because also what, what was really interesting for me, like, so Mr. Jones Watches, I launched in 2007. I say I because it was just me um, with the 500 watches. Like I created a website. I emailed all the people on my mailing list from the sort of creating one-off pieces for exhibition. But somehow I, like it got blogged a bit. It got a very small amount of press. Um, but people were ordering the watches and people were ordering the watches from all over the world. Like early on, there were quite a number of orders from Russia. And I thought, remember you will die in English. Like it, it's not as universal as like a skull would be mm-hmm. so I, I thought in a way that was a, a way to sort of separate it from the language side and make a you know more universal sort of expression of it so the last laugh and the Acura are basically the same concept but one's pictorial and one's textual would you say that the last laugh is more su- successful now than the Acura I'd say they're probably pretty even I'd say the last laugh mm-hmm. tattoo is more popular because it's more colorful um yeah and it's this kind of more exuberant expression of it. Whereas like the accurate and the last laugh are both pretty monochrome. And yeah, I I wonder, I, I mean, I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder how many people have bought the accurate who have gone on to buy the last laugh or vice versa. I would have thought that they would have. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, also like it's worth saying as well, um, it's quite a polarizing message. Remember you will die you know, it's Marmite, like a lot of people see that watch, particularly who come into the shop and uh, I guess borderline offended by it, you know, certainly kind of repulsed by it, like would, couldn't imagine that they'd ever want to wear that. But mm-hmm. then there's like the people who buy it are the ones who see it as a incentive to to be bold, you know, to do things, to not let life pass you by. And and that was kind of my intention with it. I didn't I didn't want to make a watch that was for particularly morbid people or sort of goths or people who, you know, who, who it would, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, yeah, I, I see it as a positive message, as a positive kind of reminder to, you know, to fully exist. Mm-hmm. But I accept that some people don't see it that way. Yeah. Uh, and you were just saying about how in the beginning you were doing everything yourself. What does your day-to-day job involve now? Like, I, the way things have evolved... Um, the main part of my role is kind of editing designs. So we work with a lot of external collaborators. I still design maybe one or possibly two watches a year. But like for the first few years, I thought it was really important. Like I design all the watches, Mr. Jones watches. It must be me who designs them. Um, but in a way, I was kind of running out of steam after four years of just designing watches. And so I opened it up and we started collaborating with different people. Like originally people who I was friends with but as time's gone on we have cast the net a bit wider so we work with quite a broad pool of illustrators artists kind of creative people and the watches have become a lot more pictorial through that and I think for me that's a really exciting thing and that's not something necessarily that I can do myself so I kind of respect that other 
you know, I respect what other people are bringing to that. But a big part of my role is editing um, the design submissions. Each watch that we release is a kind of collaboration. It's not, it's very rare. I was saying it's never the case that an artist submits something and then it's ready to go. The only exception to that would be Christoph Devos with the Perfectly Useless Afternoon, where his design submission to the final watch is almost identical. There was a slight amount of sampling we did on colours and just we, we made some very, very minor tweaks. But most people, it's it's quite a process of we received the original design, like I will then work on it to make an on-screen version of it that's self-running that runs off the computer clock um, so we can see how it looks in motion. We review that to then we'll make a first physical sample to review that. To, and then, you know, as many times as we need to, we'll work on sampling it until we feel it's the purest, like best expression of that design. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that like the biggest part of my role is to do with that sort of product development, editing the design submissions and stuff. And, and it's nice. I really enjoy that. Like I, I would feel under quite considerable pressure if I felt like I had to design every watch that we released. Like it would be unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And what was the first few years of setting up the business like? So the business, like the business started in 2007 with the five designs, 100 pieces of each, numbered on the back. Um, the company started in, like the first watches were released, sorry, in the summer of that year. By September, the Accurate, the Remember You Will Die, had sold out. And I thought, great, now maybe people will start ordering some of the other watches because I've still got quite a few of them. But they didn't. They kept emailing saying, when are you going to make more Remember You Will Die watches? Um, so I thought, okay, that was a limited edition, but there's nothing to stop us reissuing it. And if that was the limited edition, then the reissue could be the permanent collection. I slightly updated the design, like some of the elements I didn't feel were working so well on the limited edition ones I changed for the permanent collection ones. So it was a way to sort of revisit the design and, you know, correct things that weren't quite right. Um, but actually as a model, that worked really well. So, and that's something that we still do now. So each design we release starts life as a limited edition. If it's popular, then it gets reissued into the permanent collection. Um, but so the, you were asking about the first few years. So at the start, there was that first summer of five limited editions. By the autumn, sold out. So I reissued the Acura in time for Christmas that year. Um, and then the next year, I did a further set of five designs. Two of them were reissued. And in a way, it had like an it had an okay structure to the year. In the January, February, I basically did all the design work and got organized samples. The samples would come back in sort of April. I'd review them and then confirm for production, and then have the production come through in summer. And then, if there was a popular watch, it would sell out in time to reissue it in time for Christmas. I was at this time like packing up all the orders, like answering every email. I was a one-man band doing it, but that was all right because I'd been used to sort of working for myself anyway, and I was kind of happy that the, each day had a kind of rhythm of you got the orders, you process them, you pack them up. I took them physically to the post office and posted them out. Like it was a nice, it was a kind of tidy thing. So at the end of the day, you felt like, hey, it's done. I had a sense of completion each day. I guess what changed then was 
by 2009, I was kind of getting bored of going to the post office every day. Like it became a bit of a burden. And I thought it would make sense to employ someone to maybe answer some of the customer emails, but also specifically to pack up the orders and send them out. Um, so that's when I got the unit in the Oxo Tower. So we have, and we still have that now, it's like a very small shop, but it's basically enough working space for two people to be in there. Um, and that was when I was able to employ the first person, because before that I'd just been working from home. I thought it'd be a bit weird, like someone coming to my home who was like working for me to pack up orders. Um, mm-hmm. But but actually, like, you know, it was nice for me also then to have a place of work to go to each day and, you know, to get a bit of work-life balance. Because I would answer emails all evening, you know, if there mm-hmm. were emails to be answered. You never had that sense of I'm at work or I'm at home. You were just kind of constantly somewhere between the two. Mm-hmm. When did you start making watches in London? 2012 I think or 2011 maybe was the very first ones like what happened in early 2011 I went and visited some of the factories in China and Hong Kong and that was the first time I've been over like I just all of the um, production stuff had been organized over email before that so I went around the factories that I was fascinated with it because I'm fascinated with how manufacturing works Um, But I was particularly fascinated to see the printing of the dials. I didn't see the printing of any of the discans or anything like that. But I saw the printing of dials, not for our watches, for other brands. Um, And what struck me was that, like, it it didn't look very high-tech, the equipment. Like, I didn't even know what the equipment was called that they were printing it on. I learned afterwards it's called a pad printer. When I came back to London after that, I started thinking... What would be really useful would be if we could sample the watches here because one of my frustrations at that time was when we were doing all the production in Hong Kong, China, was that you'd have a design ready to go, you'd email it off to them and then you'd wait like two and a half, three months and then you'd get the physical samples back. You'd spend like 15, 20 minutes like assessing the samples, making a few changes And then you'd have to wait two and a half, three months for the production to come back. So it's just like, it was difficult to maintain sort of momentum with the design. And it was difficult also to be very experimental because you didn't want to wait two and a half, three months and get something back that wasn't close to correct. So in a way, it made you be a bit more conservative. So I thought after visiting the factory, I thought, you know, what, we could do the sampling here. It would cut out one of those three month blocks because we could have the sample perfect, we could send it over to the factory and say, yeah, make them like this. It would be super tidy. So we, I bought a pad printer. I found a, a workshop space for us to rent um, in Camberwell. And what, what became apparent though quite quickly was, because I thought originally, well, we just sample, we'll print one watch, the components for one watch. But actually the printing, the way it works, all the time is in the setup. Like it's time consuming to mix an ink, to load it onto the printer, the actual printing of the component is almost negligible, the amount of time it takes. So it became clear quite quickly that if you were going to go through all that effort to print just one watch, you might as well print like 20 of them. And if you can print 20 of them, you might as well release it, you know, as a, like we were making them to the same standard and everything as the Chinese factories were. Mm -hmm. Um, So what happened quite quickly was, 
I thought I revised my original idea, which was we'd just do the sampling and then the factories in Asia would manufacture it. I thought, well, what we'll do is we'll do a small limited edition run here. We'll be able to see if the watch is popular and then the factory in Asia will be able to make the longer production run, which is, to be fair, is more what they were set up for. They didn't really want to make 100 piece editions of stuff like that was a bit annoying for them. Mm-hmm. They would have much rather we ordered like 500 of a single design. Um, so initially, I guess late 2011, early 2012 was when we did the, the first ones. And the first watches that we did were 20-piece editions. But gradually, we kind of built on that. And, and you know, we learned. We got better at the sort of production stuff. So we increased that to sort of 50-piece editions. And to now, where we'll do 100-piece editions quite happily. After going to the factory, is that when mm. you taught yourself how to make watches actually i'd I'd started already i'd found a course in epping called the epping at the thing called the epping forest horological center where they Mm -hmm. did evening classes in mechanical watch repair i i started going to that in 2010 i think and they had a sort of year-long program where you went every tuesday night from six till nine it was a bit of a pain to get out to because epping is like miles away from anything like miles away from the oxo tower anyway mm-hmm. um and even the center where you do the study is like three miles from the station so i had to buy a brompton get the tube all the way out to epping and then cycle the last bit it, but it was really interesting and i did enjoy learning that and that also i kind of also understood through doing that the doing the watch assembly wasn't that hard i mean you know it it's not trivial but it's not so complicated. It's not like you need a huge investment in a lot of tools and stuff. You need a handful of watchmakers, tweezers and screwdrivers and eyeglasses and stuff, but that's all relatively manageable. So I I was already sort of familiar with that before I visited the factory and then seeing how easy the printing was and knowing how that I could do the assembly as well. Yeah, it it seemed to kind of make sense. And then did you hire a print? Um, artist. You see, that would have been the smart thing to do, Olivia. Um, <laughs> I hired the original print technician and assembly person was Natasha, Natasha Mould, who mm-hmm. um, came to me via Amy. My partner had a space in Cockpit Arts in Hoban, which is a sort of incubator for different craftspeople. Natasha was working for one of the jewellers there. Um, Natasha had trained as a jeweller, um, but was also interested to do other things. She worked for a brief period in the shop in the Oxo Tower, but then I explained that I was setting up the sort of sampling and stuff. She was interested, so she started working. I think originally she worked on the weekends in the shop and then also did a few days during the week in the workshop doing printing and also assembly. And yeah, gradually, over. so Natasha did that for maybe a year, 18 months. She was doing both printing and assembly. After she left, I thought it made sense to sort of separate out those two positions. So then we had two people who were doing, but like by the end, by after 18 months, like Natasha left because she, her commute became sort of unsustainable. She moved to Aylesbury. She was doing this mammoth, like over an hour each way commute to Camberwell. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, you know, it's just, too much um but so to replace natasha then there were two people who 
kind of the way that the the works are divided out one of them did the printing which was Marion Labeth who you know we've worked with on the design of various watches and um, Genevieve who did assembly and kind of that separation still exists now so now the people who tend to assembly tend to be trained jewelers which was indeed Genevieve's background and then the people who do the printing like Paul and Ellen are um, printmakers and like it, it seems obvious with hindsight like you'd say well you know <laughs> why don't you just hire printmakers to start with but I, th- mm-hmm. I thought it was really different I like I thought what we're doing is it's not the same as silkscreen printing because that's like a big physical thing like the kind of printing we do is like very different actually it's not it's just the scale is slightly different but all of the skills and the kind of ink mixing and the understanding of the process is absolutely a a printmaking thing and similarly like the watch assembly the jewelers who have sort of bench working skills and are used to handling very small components you know are very well um, set up to learn the watchmaking side um, Mm -hmm. just because they they used to kind of work on that scale. I suppose you didn't think that you would need like more employees were you not selling as many watches then? No, definitely not. No, no. And um, like also, so making the watches in London coincided with Emily starting to work full time um, on social media and marketing. Like Emily is really important in the overall like picture of Mr. Jones watches because without her, like, I don't think we really exist as a brand. I think like my interest is in product development and you know, manufacturing and developing new products and stuff. It's not really in communicating that stuff. Like I'm not a great one for social media. Like I think without Emily, we'd still be making watches, but no one would have heard of us and we wouldn't be selling very many because, you know, the kind of, there wouldn't be an, like an allied way to communicate that effectively. And and also, Mm -hmm. you know, the work that you do, Olivia and, and Esme, of course, um, you know, it's it's a really important part of the overall. And I guess Emily was the first person who I employed who I thought, I couldn't do your job. Mm-hmm. Whereas everyone else, I'd always thought, yeah, you know, I like you are helping me out because this is something I just don't have time for. But this is something that I am doing anyway. Like the printing, mm-hmm. originally I did all the printing, but then, you know, I just didn't have the time. I have other responsibilities in the company and stuff I have to do. Um, but yeah, so we'd start printing and producing in the workshop and Emily also helping to really to create Mr. Jones watches as a brand and to work out how we communicated, you know, what we did in a, in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. Before Emily started to work full-time on marketing, how did you find getting press and marketing for the brand? Just really hit and miss. Like I was so lazy. I would just wait for, a journalist to mail me basically <laughs> or or actually early on we used to get featured on Dazine quite often because Dazine would you know were supportive of independent British design and were interested in what we we're doing and then later they had an their own online watch store and they used to stock some of the watches so then they were also sort of motivated to write about us um, and in a way being featured on Dazine made us lazy because if you've got something featured on Dazine, and probably it's still the case today, like you get a ton of other press on it because there were lots of other bloggers who were reading Dazine who were 
you know, who would learn about you through that. And, and, and indeed, not, not just bloggers, there were print journalists who would see you on Dizine and then get in touch. Like in a, in a way, it's soured because at a certain point, Dizine would only write about the watches that they also had in their store, which, you know, fair enough. They're not the BBC. They don't have to have editorial independence or anything. Um, mm-hmm. But we were reluctant to sell them limited edition watches because in a way, the limited edition watches are our way of testing how popular design is going to be. If we sell them all to our sort of wholesale partners, then, you know, we don't get that insight. So we don't know what we should be reissuing. How did you start selling to wholesale websites and shops? Um, one of the, so the, the first wholesale customer that we had um, was called Watchismo. They've now bought the watches.com domain and they're, they're a very um, important retailer for us. They're mostly focused on America, although they sell worldwide. But Mitch, who is the founder of Watchismo or watches.com as it is now, he used to also write a blog alongside having his um, his online store for watches. And he was really fascinated with the stuff that we were doing very early on. And, you know, I, I said, when I released the first set of watches, I sent out an email to my contacts. He was one of the contacts because he'd seen the one-off series of watches that were for exhibition. Like he has a huge oversight of the the watch world. You know, he's very knowledgeable. Um, so he'd he'd come across them and he was interested in them because they were very different from existing watches. So Watchismo, anyway, were a big online retailer. I mean, watches.com, they're exponentially bigger now. But because we were on there, I guess a bit like Dizine, other retailers would see the products there and then approach us. Um, So we were kind of lazy with that as well because it became sort of easy for us just to wait for interesting stores to contact us. Mm -hmm. I guess we're quite particular about the stores that we will sell to. I would say of all of the, you know, the wholesale customers who email us saying, you know, as an approach, approaching us to stock the watches, we probably reject seven out of 10, maybe, maybe even more. Not, not because we're like super precious about, oh, you can't stock the watches, like your shop isn't good enough or stuff. We just feel like they're quite specific, the watches we do. They've got a kind of story with them we need them to be communicated effectively. Like otherwise it's just a disappointing experience for the customer or, or, or what's worse is for this store that wants to sell them just as any other commodity, any other watch brand they might get in, they're just not going to sell them because they're not going to communicate them properly. So they'll just be stuck with the stock and that's not good for anyone. So Mm -hmm. yeah, we're, we're really fussy on like who we'd sell to. Like how we work with artists as well. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the artists, I actually know, I was going to say we're probably even more fussy. We're probably about the same. Like mm-hmm. we, we get a lot of unsolicited approaches from people, which genuinely I always welcome. Like Christoph Devos came to us as an unsolicited approach, as did Honorio DePiro. What I would say, though, is like the classic mistakes that designers, artists make when they're submitting watches to us is the things we never want to see are reworking of reworkings of our existing watches because that's pointless like you know we could rework any of our existing watches if we wanted to we don't because we think they're the best expression of those designs and the other thing that they do is they'll create a design that's purely aesthetic that has no narrative with it has no context or like message or you know 
yeah, no story. Mm-hmm. And that never works for us. Like it could be the most beautiful watch in the world. Like not not because I think that couldn't be a successful product, but it's just not right for us. It's not what we do. We create these sort of narrative led watches um, that are quite pictorial. Yeah, because that's kind of our, our thing. Uh, so what's the biggest change that the business has gone through since the beginning? You've already said about marketing and social media. Um, I, I guess the biggest change really is that we are a team of people now. And so it's less of a dictatorship, which, you know, it was at the start. You have to be a dictator if you're like starting up a company. I think me learning to sort of relax and trust the people around me more has been the biggest change for me. And I think has made the company much more successful. Like um, I should pay tribute to like Elena and Kat in the production side and Andy, Paul and Ellen who do the, the two print technicians, because I think collectively the four of us, five of us, sorry, I can't count. Um, like when new designs are submitted and we're working through the sampling and stuff, it's not me who makes all the decisions. Like it, I really appreciate the the kind of insight and the input that they give. And, the, you know, overall, as a collective, we create a much stronger product than, than I possibly could on my own. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, like having a team, like having, like, although we're tiny, like we're a very small group, but having that sense of a team and, a sort of collective purpose that we're all working towards, that's definitely the biggest change. You know, the first employees were sort of part-time and were mostly doing things like packing up the orders, um, you know, so weren't so involved in the overall, although I'd talk through with them, you know, stuff that was happening. But, you know, it's difficult for you to be particularly invested in a business if you only work part-time and your main role is just sticking postal labels on boxes you know that's very different from actually you're the one who's assembling the watches and you're very intimately kind of involved in the whole process from the sampling through to the production through to hopefully the reissue and that's kind of the biggest change Mm -hmm. so what does the next few years look like for mr jones watches our big um project on the horizon is we're moving into a new space in Forest Hill where we have um, what used to be a shop that we're converting into a combined sort of workshop, print space, and also the sort of packing and dispatch. Um, in a way, the coronavirus pandemic has, I guess, sort of preempted this because now from the current workshop in Camberwell, we do the printing, we do the assembly there, we did that already, but now also the orders are packed and sent from there. Um, so I think we're getting a bit of a sense of how how it will be when we move to Forest Hill. But yeah, that's our big thing on the horizon. And that I'm really looking forward to because at the moment we're in, like the printing is in one space and the assembly is in another space. And up until coronavirus, the Oxo Tower was where the orders were packed and sent from. I'm looking forward to it, those three spaces being united into one place. I, t- I, I think it will help us you know, in the same way I spoke about the kind of collective editing of designs and things, I think that will help foster that even more um, going forward. Mm-hmm. When are we looking to be moving into the Forest Hill workshop? The plan is that the work, the building work, so the, the space has been gutted, but then there's quite a lot of renovation work that needs to happen. Um, the rough plan is that that will start first week in June, 
and take about three months and then there'll probably be a month to fit out. So best case scenario with everything going really smoothly would be end of September, start of October. Mm -hmm. So that's all the questions I have. Do you want to add anything else? I I guess like we touched on the the submissions that people make that I do generally. I like I will look at everything and I'm always happy to receive them. And, And I'm sure, you know, me saying this on the podcast will solicit more submissions. But just for people to be aware that our rejection rate is really high um, and, and not because we're overly precious or we think the designs are terrible and stuff, just because we have a really clear sense of what's right for us. And it's difficult for outside people maybe to tap into that or to fully understand it. But certain things I just feel are not right for us, even if they look like great designs, even if they look like they're really commercial and like they would sell really well. So, yeah, I guess for those people who will submit stuff to us, not to be disheartened if we reject it. It's not because it's a bad design. It's just not the right design for us. Do you give feedback to those people? Depends how busy I am. Like genuinely, like <laughs> if, if I had to write detailed feedback for everyone, I, it's all I would do. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes it can be quite a short email back. Um but yeah, I try to. Yeah. When actually, when I, when I was just starting out, I sent images of the watches to Paul Smith, the designer, because I kind of wanted him to stock them in his store. But he was making his own line of watches then, which I think he still does. Um, but I got back a reply, not directly from him, but through his uh, secretary, who said, "Yeah, Paul looked at the designs. He thinks they're really interesting and stuff. And yeah, we really want to encourage you." I was really made up with that. I thought it was a really nice thing. So, yeah, I, I always try to reply to people who write to us if I possibly can. Hopefully you've learnt more about how Mr. Jones Watches started and how we operate as a business from listening to this episode. Thanks for listening. We have a new episode coming out every Wednesday. And until then, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Mr. Jones Watches.